Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, I'm going to give you 17 programming principles that come before volume and intensity, or at least they should. These are things that I look at before I dive into volume and intensity when programming for a client. So, you know, over the last five to 10 years, I'd say, a lot of training research has happened and been published. It's actually been really cool. And in fact, sometimes it pulls me me closer to the training realm than the nutrition realm, to be honest with you, because I think that there's so much more to explore inside of training. It doesn't make training more valuable or more important, as we know they're pretty equal. You know, I think that, uh, there's this, like, there's people that always talk about, you know, like, Oh, it's 80% diet, 20% training. I I disagree with that completely. Um, especially because you can eat really, really well or eat in a deficit or whatever, and you're not going to burn a ton of calories. You're not going to build any muscle because you need a stimulus to do those things. So, um, I disagree with that, but I also disagree with anybody who says 80% of it is training because the diet plays such a massive role. And that's the part that allows us to uh, improve the third realm more than anything, which is recovery. And it really boils down to training, nutrition, recovery equally. But, you know, with recovery, for example, there are some cool things, you know, we can look into uh, different recovery modalities that may or may not be that great for us. For example, uh, looking at the like NSAID, right? Ibuprofen and stuff like that. Like, does that harm muscle growth? Uh, Brandon, our chief science officer is actually doing, uh, that for our next research review, uh, which by the time you listen to this podcast, that'll be live. Actually, it comes out today as you're listening to this. So, um, check that out. It is, uh, I don't know what the URL is going to be. So just look in the description of this podcast. There will be a, uh, a link for that. Um, but that's a really interesting realm of of research, you know, like does, because what we know is that it blunts inflammation, right? And this is actually, this is cool because <laughs> I haven't listened, I haven't read the article yet and I haven't done the podcast with them yet. We're doing the podcast next week and the article goes live as I'm recording this in about a week. So I haven't really dug into it yet, but from my understanding over the years, you know, ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory, right? That can be good in certain situations. I hurt my back. I'm going to take Ibuprofen. I'm going to really strong ones <laughs> at that. But we also know that muscle growth comes from an inflammatory response to the stress placed on it. So if we go into the gym and place X amount of stress or mechanical tension, we're likely going to cause some inflammation and it's up to our body to recover that and build from that. If we eliminate our body's duty and just give it a Band-Aid, aka ibuprofen, we may be limiting our body's need and, and time doing this rebuilding model, this rebuilding phase. And I think that's really important to know, but um, we'll, we'll find out really what that's all about when Brandon does his research review and you guys get to check that out. So 
go read that. But there's also a lot of research on compression pants and cryotherapy and, and ice baths. And some work well, some don't. And uh, there's not that much research that's really leaning us towards you need to do those things. Again, like ice baths, for example, they actually show to reduce muscle hypertrophy. Um, now, we know that they're also really good as an anti-inflammatory. So if you are a CrossFit athlete and you're at a competition and you have a workout in the morning and you have a workout in the evening, 100% take some ibuprofen and do an ice bath in between those sessions. You will blunt that inflammatory response. You will heal faster. You will recover faster. And you'll be able to perform better in that next bout. However, in your training leading up to that competition, or if you're training for body composition improvements, you might not want to rely on those things because they blunt that inflammatory muscle growth response. Uh, so there's there's research on that, but what we know about recovery is, is pretty simple. Like get your sleep, eat enough food, and manage training. Like if you do that, you really aren't going to run into recovery issues. Like any specific supplement or anything like that isn't going to make or break it. You might add 1% difference. Um, inside nutrition, there's a lot of good research coming out on, um, I would say the most in thing, the thing I'm most interested in is actually uh, carbohydrate timing because, you know, it's, the endurance world is growing and, and that's a big place of research for carb research period. So they, they use endurance athletes a lot when they're considering depletion rates, replenishment rates, so, uh, liver glycogen, muscle glycogen, blood glucose levels during training, so on and so forth. That stuff's really interesting to me because it can kind of tweak our, our timing of nutrients and, and that might be, you know, helpful. And in, in, to add to timing of nutrients, chrononutrition came out and that's kind of a, a new thing in the industry that's there in, in the research that's blooming that may show us that there's more to this than just hitting your calories, you know. But my point with this is, is you know, gut health is another one that's that's been more and more research lately. But my point with this is that, you know, as time goes on, one thing we, we definitely realize is that it's more and more prevalent that calories matter most. <laughs> so, which is kind of disappointing because we want some cool, crazy thing to come out and, and shock us and, and make us like get rejuvenated into, into nutrition research. Right. And, and that's the thing is too, is, you know, that's why Corona Nutrition is so exciting. But in general, recovery is pretty damn simple. Nutrition's pretty damn simple. Training, on the other hand, I mean, there's so much we can consider. Inside of volume alone, how many realms can we go into that change how we respond to volume, high or low, right? What hormones in, in growth hormones and, and uh, stress hormones and all these different hormones that are affected by training, how are those affected differently by tr training with high intensity, low volume, high volume, low intensity, so on and so forth. Um, training intensity is another thing. There's You can train at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% of your one or at max. What changes and when does it change? How do we have to equate volume between those things? Um, exercise selection. You know, Can you build just as much muscle with a split squat as a back squat? Or a leg press as a leg extension. Like, and, and if you can, what's the use of doing them differently? Are there different dominances of where we're placing that stress of the muscle? Um, frequency, how often you hit a muscle, does that change anything? Uh, timing of your workout every day, does that change anything? Uh, your stress and recovery levels before training, does that change anything? Concurrent training, doing things like endurance sport and powerlifting together, right? Uh, speed and velocity of bar path. Like how fast do you move the bar? Does that matter? Adding negatives, does that matter? 
pauses does that matter drop sets does that matter like the the rest period intervals like it, it just keeps going on and on and on there's so much involved inside of training which is why there's so much room left for good research to come out um, and there is still great research coming out on nutrition so like I said especially with like the timing of nutrients um, and supplementation um, and gut health is 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 a whole different world uh and it's still very undiscovered. So there's stuff in there. But my point with this whole thing is that training, I, I kind of just went on a random rant about how I love reading training research. But training is so in-depth, um, which made me want to re- record this podcast, you know, and talk about some things that I look at personally before I even get into volume and intensity. Because many people rely on the importance of volume intensity. Volume being how much total work is being done you know, per session, uh, which could be tracked as load times reps times sets, which is like the classic way to record volume. Or it can be tracked a little bit more simply for hypertrophy mainly, and that's by sets per muscle group per week. Intensity is how much you are lifting or what load is on the bar. Um, This one, a lot of people get confused because they think about intensity, they think about things like insanity, right? Your heart is pounding, you're doing these sweat-inducing metabolic workouts, it's not the case. Intensity is how much load is on the bar when we're speaking of the technical term. Um, you know, this isn't a problem for most because those who understand research can take from this and apply it into their own clients, their own training or their clients' programming. People like me, right? We know a little bit more so how to interpret the research. And when I don't, I reach out to my chief science officer. That's why we have him. However, it is a problem for those who don't understand research and how research actually applies into the gym because they just take these ideas and unintentionally end up believing that all that matters is volume and intensity. If those two are in place, you'll see results, period, right? Once again, that is, it's not, it's, it's simply not that case. Like that's not the case. Um, in fact, I've, I literally put together 17 things for you today that are going to cover all of my programming tips and strategies and what I like to look at before I focus on volume intensities. Um, this comes from 10 years of coaching experience, seven of which were in person with real people. Um, you know, and, and my experience tells me that there's some key elements in place that that affect volume and intensity uh, and, and maybe make them not really matter at all. And, and what I mean by that is if you don't focus on these things, volume and intensity do not hold their weight. Like they're just not that important. So before you calculate how many sets per week you need to do or the percentage of one rep max, all your lifts need to be, here are the 17 things I want you to consider. The first one being joint angles and position. So before we look at volume and intensity, because yes, volume and intensity are important. And mind you, the last thing I will say about this before I actually get into the the meat and potatoes when we do research, we, not as in me, because I don't do research, but when they do research, we have to also understand what can we do research on, right? It's very difficult to do research on things that you can't extrapolate an average or a mean number, right? Volume and intensity is really easy to do that because you can test somebody's one rep max and then say, okay, this group is going at 60% of their one rep max, this group is going at 80%, and this group is going at 95% right? And we're going to equate volume. So volume's the same, intensities are different. Who builds the most muscle, right? If they all build the same amount of muscle, then we know that volume is more important for muscle, which has happened in the past. But 
we can use these numbers, right? Okay, everybody's doing 10 sets per muscle group per week. Everybody's doing their percentage depending on the group they're in. Boom, we control those things. Now let's just see the results, right? The problem with that is there's things inside of training. There's things inside of human mechanics. There's things inside of adherence. There's things inside of mind-muscle connection and perception of what's being worked and the stress actually being placed on the muscle that they cannot really record. I mean, you can use EMGs, but we know those aren't completely accurate. And most studies aren't going to put EMGs all over everybody every time they're doing a training study. So if we can, if we consider all these things and, and kind of use this as like your checklist to get your ducks in a row, what you'll find is that as you lock in these 17 key elements, you will be able to start calculating your sets and your percentages and all that stuff. And they will be 10 times more effective. Maybe not literally 10 times, but they will be way more effective because you got everything in line before you jumped in to the volume and intensity camp, right? So the number one thing is joint angles and positions. And I think this is really important. If you've ever trained different sized human beings in person, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I can think of many cases with this that I've been through. I can think of a case where I worked with a, uh, he was 6'11", or he was 7 foot, basically 7 feet tall, uh, United States rugby player. So he was on the U.S. rugby team. And he was 7 foot tall. He's probably like 275 lean. So this this man is a massive human. I mean, he's literally towering over me. And then in the same day as I'm training people, I have a 5'2 guy who is lean as well. Two both athletic, two both very fit, two both strong relative to their body weight, but they're two completely different people. And why, why does this matter? Well, because saying that volume and intensity are the only two things that matters dis credits how I will use exercise selection differently depending on these two people, right? And that's, you know, and, and exercise selection is going to be one of the one of the things that we talk about today. Um, actually, I didn't even, now that I'm looking at my list, I didn't even list it, which is crazy. Exercise selection is extremely important. <laughs> well, this is, is going to, uh, uh, is going to help that too. And there's, there's another key that kind of is related to this that I'll talk about next, but, um, joint angles and positions are basically, you know, and, and I guess, I guess what I was leaning more towards on that one was actually number uh, two, which is limb and torso length, which again applies to individual exercise selection. So if we couple those two together, like if we talk about limb and torso length first, um, that's my mistake. I, I, I mixed those two. If we look at that seven foot rugby player in that five, two general dude that I'm training in the same day, there's no way we're doing the same exercises with them because they have completely different lengths of their femurs, of their calves, of their their muscle bellies, of their their bone structures, right? Of like their scapula moves differently. Their posture is going to be different. Their spine is completely different. So for me to go, all right, we're back squatting today, uh, three sets, eight. It's not going to work, right? So for for seven foot tall, his name was Will rugby player, I'm probably going with the Zercher squat. In fact, that was one of our main lifts, a Zercher squat or a trap bar dead squat with a large trap bar because he could barely fit in the normal size trap bar. But what that does is, is it allows me to manipulate his joint angles, which is this, the other point I have here that I'm combining these two together. It allows me to manipulate his joint angles, his foot positioning, uh, lifting his heel, changing his, his upright posture, 
by changing where the bar is loaded, right? So I can still load the squat pattern in a full range of motion, but I have to put him in a different position because his femurs and torso is so long that if I put a bar on his back, he's doing a good morning, which limits how much load we can actually place on the quads. And it increases the risk of low back injury. Good mornings are a great exercise, but if you're an athlete, they're like playing a sport. Like this guy is, is like, hey, I get paid to play for the United States rugby team. So if you fuck me up, I don't get paid, right? So I'm paying you to make sure that I continue getting paid. So that's some pressure, right? Good morning is not what I'm going to give him because I know too many people have hurt their low backs doing good mornings because you're limited on how much you can lift. And it's an awkward movement. It's an awkward loading position. But uh, I will give him a front squat or a zercher squat with elevated heels or a trap bar dead squat where we can pull from the floor and there's no risk of injury. And I can get him to start in the position I want him to be in. So instead of putting a bar on his back and going, all right, squat down. And then by the time he's at the bottom of the squat and he's already fully loaded, not just his muscles, but his spine as well. Then I say, hey, we got to get your hips in this position, get your knees in this position. No, 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 no. Let's do a trap bar dead squat first because then I can get you in that position with no load. You're just holding the bar at the bottom. And then you pull it from the floor. That's why it's a dead squat. Um, But the biggest thing here is uh, your limb and torso length make a big difference. Now, there's a lot of people who are average-sized individuals like myself. I am 5'9". My license says 5'10". And I usually tell people 5'10". So I'm being brutally transparent here. Uh, And um, I'm a pretty average-sized dude. I wear a 10-and-a-half shoe and I'm 5'9". 174, 5 pounds. That's a very average human being size. So I will be able to use a lot of the same exercise selections as many other individuals. However, this is where joint angles and positions come into play because two things. Number one, how I hit a muscle is different. So a good example of this is my good friend, uh, really good friend and actually previous coach, uh, Chris Barricat did a research study on this for the biceps. He did a bicep study where one group did nine total sets. So all, all volume was equated because we know that's the biggest trigger of muscle growth. We got to equate that if we want to see if muscle growth is the same between groups on any type of study. So he, he did had one group doing nine sets of regular just, just curls, the same way every single time. Then he had a group do three different variations for three sets each, also equaling to nine sets. Total volume was was matched between groups. But this second group did uh, three sets of curls in a neutral shoulder position. So this is like if you're just standing up and you got dumbbells by your side, your shoulders are in a neutral position. They're aligned with your torso, right? Uh, Then he had them do three sets at a flexed shoulder position, which means like an easy bar curl or a spider curl. This is where your elbows are in front of your face, right? So on a chest supported bench, leaning over the top of it and doing curls or an easy bar curl anything where your elbows are forward because that's a shoulder flexion state and then he did three sets at a shoulder extension which would be on an incline bench leaning back so now I can pull my shoulders back and let my arms hang and my shoulders are actually in hyperextension so we do three sets of curls in all these positions and the group that had the different joint angles and positions actually built more muscle and the reason for that is because as we change and alter our joint angles in positions of our limbs, we are going to place more stress on certain parts of the muscle versus other. So two things probably happened here. Number one, they probably built more muscle because they, and I'd have to look at where they did the measurements in the sites, but they probably built more muscle in specific areas. So maybe the neutral grip where we did neutral or neutral shoulder position, that part of the muscle was just as developed as the other group because the other group stayed in that position the whole time. And the other group might have had a better peak, might have had a better, uh, there's there's insertion point, 
on both sides of your bicep. So maybe they had more dominance in one of the insertion points, right? There's, there's multiple parts of your bicep. So changing these joint ankles allows us to place more stress on certain parts. Or what happened is because of the different variation, overall growth grew, right? Either way, the, the research shows the biceps grew. So joint ankles matter. I would argue the same for a squat depending on your limb leg. Like I said earlier, if somebody has a long, has long femurs and a short torso or long femurs and a long torso, usually lo- the long femurs are the ones that, that cause this. They'll sit into it more. It'll be much more glute, low back dominant. If you're like me, you have uh, pretty short femurs and, and a normal torso and you have a pretty upright squat position, back squats are so quad dominant. I don't get my glutes at all in there. Like it's, they're just pure quad, which is what I want anyway. So I'm happy with that. But, um, Point being is the squat is different depending on my joint ankles, right? So if I do a, uh, for example, a reverse lunge or, or a split squat, it is quad dominant, but it's also pretty glute dominant, especially if you create a deficit or anything like that. Um, or if you sit back into it or if you lean forward and you create a bigger stretch on your glutes at the bottom, that's going to be more glute dominant. Um, you can do a glute dominant lunge or a walking lunge. But if I elevate my front heel like I would if I was elevating my heels on a squat. Now I'm, I'm completely changing the angle of my knee. My knee is going to glide far further forward over the toe. My ankle is going to flex more and I'm going to have more quad tension. So now I just took this, uh, this split squat. I changed the, the angles of my joints and I made it a specific isolated quad exercise. Um, for a chest fly, we know that you can do open hand or pronated, and pronated has been shown to place greater stress on the chest. So when you're doing flies, a lot of times people have their their uh, their palms open, right, and they come together almost like you're clapping in the middle, right? You can bring your hands together with the with the cables. Well, if you turned your palms down and made a fist and did it that way, you're going to place a better, better stress. This is called like a Bayesian cable fly. You can look that up. Bayesian cable flies are really cool. I um, mean, you can do it with just the without handles too, which is how I like to do it. Cause it just is like ultimately it's much harder to get your bicep involved. A lot of times people get their bicep involved in a, in a fly. But point being is I'm changing. Where's my grip? Where's my wrist? Where am I putting my elbows? Fuck a, a row is the greatest example of this. I can target any area of my back with a one-arm dumbbell row by just changing where my elbow is going. If I drag my elbow low, I'm hitting my lats. If I drag my elbow high, I'm hitting my traps. If I drag my elbow right in the middle, I'm hitting more rhomboid, rear delt, uh, lower trap, right? There's just so much going on that we can change it. A bent row is the same thing. Row it low, row it high, row it mid. You're going to change where you're hitting it. Shit, upright, you're going to hit your rear delts completely. It's not even a back exercise anymore. It's shoulders. So um, joint angles, play a big role. And if I'm just looking at volume, I can keep exercise selection pretty simple and that might work for a beginner. But as you get more advanced and if you want to have more fun, we need to have different joint angles and exercise selections throughout the week to keep you stimulated from a neurological level. So having fun, your brain is continuing to be engaged, but also from a muscular level to make sure that we're growing adequately. Number three is fun and enjoyment. So number one was, uh, we're going to say limb and torso length. And then number two was uh, joint angles and positions. Number three is fun and enjoyment. So fun and enjoyment is something that I think a lot of people discount. A lot of people don't take into consideration. This is this is 100% why um, I talk about this so much in the Taylor Trainer and, and about the Taylor Trainer because I, everybody who does my programming 
they usually say it's fun. They're usually like, man, I'm having a lot of fun. Like I, I read uh, a review that somebody sent me via the mail on last week's Q&A and it's just like crazy. Like people are having a blast doing this training and it's actually working. That's the cool part. So, but the main reason for here is, is if you don't enjoy your training, if you're not having fun in the gym, if you're not looking forward to go to the gym 90% of the time, because yes, there's definitely going to be days where you're like, I do not want to go in here, but you got to do it anyway, because it's when you do things you don't want to do and you suck it up when you become stronger and it's easier to do things that are difficult in the future. But if you're not having fun with your training, you're not going to stick with it. Adherence is the number one factor. We all, we know this so well because we talk about this all the time in, in the coaching industry. Consistency and adherence are the two most important things, right? I don't care how scientific your plan is. If you're not consistent with it, it's not going to work, period. So what you need to do is make sure that you're following a program that is actually engaging you mentally. It's fun and you are excited to do it, right? Because if you are and you're enjoying it, then you will stick with it for longer and I guarantee your results will be better. Even if it's a bad program, a bad program done consistently is better than a great program done inconsistently. It's true because if you have very simple things, it's like, ah, oh, this is a shitty program, but at least I'm hitting the basics or whatever it is. You know, I'm still doing something. Well, you're going to progress at that then. Even if it's shitty, you're progressing at that shitty thing. So you're, it's becoming less shitty <laughs> as you progress, right? But if you have this awesome scientific program and it's amazing and it's going to be the best program ever, but you stick with it for a week, then you fall off for a few and then you jump back on for a couple of days and you fall off for a week, it's, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to work. So number three is fun and enjoyment. And I actually think that should be number one. And I think it's probably one of the most important things. Um, in fact, I posted the, these 17 things on Instagram, and that was the one out of all 17 that Gunner Fitness, who is the Los Angeles Lakers strength coach trainer, he commented on it. And, and, and I've had him on the podcast, and, and uh, we go back and forth sometimes. He's a good, really good dude, legend in the industry. He's been doing this stuff for years. That was the one thing he pointed out. He said, I think number three is the most important and underrated or something like that. And it's like, yep, bingo. So you really, really got to make sure of that. Number four is going to be effort, uh, and this is not intensity or load, but like literal effort. So we're talking RPE, rate of perceived exertion, and RIR, reps in reserve. Like those are how we gauge this effort. But one of the things that's been really cool to see in the research over the last five to 10 years is that, you know, we can mimic a result by mimicking effort, despite what volume and intensity do. So if we place, and this is why, there's people who are like, no, low volume, high, high intensity is the best. Uh, some people are like, no, it's, it's high volume, low, low intensity. And then there's people that are like, it's all about the mind-muscle connection. Like as long as you feel your muscle working, it's going to grow. And they're all correct because those individuals themselves believe so much in their specific theory or route that they put a lot of effort into it. And effort is the thing that's actually leading to these results. If you put effort into your training – you will grow. You're going to create more mechanical tension. You are going to create more stress on the muscle. It's going to be required to grow. So this is, again, one of the biggest things. And this is why, like, if you are if you haven't ever taken a set completely to failure, like I'm talking about, like, you get halfway up in the deadlift and drop the bar, or you, you need to scream for your buddy to pull the bar off your chest during a bench press. Like, if you've never been in that position, or, like, fallen doing a push-up, drop the bells doing curls, like, you need to go do that, right? Listen to this podcast. Then in the next training session, go fail at some shit. And I know that sounds harsh. And, and make sure you do it safely. Like don't pick something that's going to crush your spine. And then you're going to sue me because you get hurt. And I told you to go to failure. <laughs> but uh, what I'm saying is 
make sure that you experience max effort because if I've never maxed out in the gym, I honestly wouldn't know what an RPE8 is. I wouldn't know how to leave two RIR reps in reserve. I wouldn't know what what does it feel like when you only have two reps in the tank because I feel like I have two reps in the tank and I've, I've been in situations where I'm squatting, for example, and I'm like, I got one more in the tank and I do one and I'm like, you know what? I think I got another. Do another one and then like spotter walks up. I'm like, fuck it. I got another. And I did another and then I'm like, I could probably do one more, but I'm a racket. But that was three extra reps when I said I only had one. And it's and, and it's only because I pushed by, right? I pushed into the zone of like, I don't know if I'm going to get this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And now I know the feeling when I actually have two reps in reserve. So it's really, really important to go to failure so you can learn these RPE and RIR tactics because those gauge your effort and your effort is the most important thing. There's too many studies that show an equated uh, volume, uh, I'm sorry, they have different volumes, different intensities, different exercise selections, different all this stuff. But as long as the person is training effectively, so they're, they're working the muscles and they have an RPE of eight or above or an RIR of two or lower, they get the same exact result, which means that if we're within two reps of complete failure, we are going to be creating the highest level of stimulus. Three reps in reserve is still okay. That's why there's some people who don't really understand RIR, but they're still getting results. It's because they probably are within three or four reps in reserve, and that's fine. But anything less than three, like four and lower, it's just not that effective. It's it's a warm up. It's not stimulative enough. So there's there's a you know the stimulus stimulus recovery adaptation curve SRI or SRA curve is what I think it is. I'm trying to think of what the exact analogy is. It's it's from Mike Isretel. Um, juggernaut uses a lot it's a really good concept but it's basically what's the relative relationship between strength and fatigue uh right strength and recovery right or or stimulus i should say stimulus and recovery stimulus and fatigue stimulus and fatigue ratio sfr that's what it is stimulus fatigue ratio so if we have enough stimulus to fatigue but we can still recover we're good but if we have too much stimulus that we can't uh, that we get over fatigued and we can't recover that's an issue Right, so staying within one, two, three RP uh, RIR or or seven, eight, or sorry, eight, nine, ten RPE is going to lead to the best results you can get. You know, and there's certain exercises where you're safer to go closer to the top or the bottom of that spectrum. Meaning, on a dumbbell lateral raise, I can probably go to zero RIR. I can fail on that, and the next day I'll be fine. Uh, on a barbell back squat, I can fail on that, but I probably won't be okay the next day. Right, but my main point here is is you know. Uh, number three, I'm sorry, number four, um, effort is like one of the biggest things. It's just one of the biggest things. You know what I absolutely hate? Prepping my own meals. I hate sitting there and cooking meal after meal, putting them in containers, saving them myself, doing all the work, and they never turn out good because I suck at cooking. But that's why I started using Eat to Evolve. In fact, you can head over to eat2evolve.us and enter the promo code BOOM20 to save 20% on your first order. They give you free shipping if you order over $100, which is pretty damn easy to do if you're setting up most of your meals, and it's never frozen, so it's actually fresh. This is not some microwavable mush you're going to get from any other company. This is a gourmet meal, and if you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen some of those meals on my story, my favorite being the maple shredded pork with sweet potato hash. But the reason I wanted to bring this to your attention is because this is our newest podcast sponsor, and I couldn't be more excited because it's actually good meals 
done for me. They have the macros on the container and they're going to work for our clients as well. So if you are in need of a meal prep service, you're tired of prepping your own meals, or you just suck at cooking and you're too lazy to do it yourself or learn, this is the perfect place to go. Again, eat2evolve.us. There's a link in the description of this podcast and you can enter the promo code BOOM20 to save 20% on your first order. Without any further ado, let's get back into the podcast. Number five today is neural fatigue. Um, and I think this is is realistically, I, I would actually say neurological fatigue and adaptation, neurological s- stimulus and adapt and uh, fatigue. Because the reason I say this is because there's certain things, like for example, there's a lot of programs that squat two, three, four times a week, but there's not as many programs that deadlift two, three, four times a week. Why is that? I mean, it could be because most there's a lot of people who hurt their backs doing deadlifts, but also it's probably because the deadlift is a more fatiguing lift in general. Squats are fatiguing as hell. Don't get me wrong. So this is like a, it's a, it's a close tie, but, uh, uh, like they're a close second. I'm sorry. Deadlifts are known to be a little bit more neurologically fatiguing. You can typically lift heavier. You're pulling from the floor. You're, you're incorporating more muscle groups. Like uh, you're more likely to compensate and bring in different muscles to help you finish that lift. It's, it's mentally a grind. It's just, it's neurologically fatiguing. A curl, a fly, a seated cable row even, that which can be super heavy and can be neurologically fatiguing, is nowhere near as neurologically fatiguing as the bench, the squat, the deadlift. So if we put all of our volume towards big movements, so we're just squatting, benching, and deadlifting a ton, and we're like, hey, we're just going to get all our volume in there, we'll get stronger, and we'll probably get just big, right, because volume's equated. Yeah, but you won't be able to recover because neurological fatigue is, is so crazy. That's why when they do research studies, you know, like, and they did, uh, they did a group that did like seven sets of three and then a group that did like three sets of 10 or something like that. Two completely different intensity zones, right? One's mainly strength, one's mainly hypertrophy. They grew the same amount because volume was equated, but the people doing the lower rep stuff had to do so many sets and they were lifting heavier weights that it was much more neurologically fatiguing. They had to take longer breaks in between. Their gym sessions were way longer. So if our only goal is building muscle, then we have to consider the neural fatigue that comes from the style of training we choose. And we have to balance that out so we can be less neurological fatigue. And and our nervous system is one of those things that it gets worked quite a bit in all training. But it's going to predominantly get worked hardest in low rep heavy strength training, grinders, or explosive work like sprints, throws, jumps, snatches, clean, stuff like that. Anything explosive. Um, And if we do too much of that stuff, even if volume is equated... We're screwed because neurologically speaking, we'll be too fatigued. Now, if you ignore those things, you will not have any neurological adaptations, right? You will have very minimal, I should say, not any. You'll have very minimal neurological adaptations. That's why a 45-year-old dude trying to lose weight, I still have him doing explosive work. And he's like, why are we doing explosive work? It's because you need to constantly train your neurological system. That's what's going to make you more effective in the weight training. It's going to make you more effective uh, as a a business owner or person, right? Your brain's going to think a little bit better. Your reaction time's going to be better. So if you fall, you're going to be able to catch yourself, which becomes really handy with elderly. And that's why when I trained people who were 60, 70, 80 years old, that was what I was doing. And when I, I used to intern for my the guy the professor at my college who owned a gym inside the hospital and did rehab work same thing he was doing explosive work with 80 year olds why because their nervous system slows down as they age and their reaction time gets more and more and more delayed and guess what the leading cause of death for elderly is falling and breaking their hips so what if we train them to be able to catch themselves we change life we make them live longer 
we give their family more years with them, right? So neurological training in general. So this is a two-sided thing. So you need to train your neurological system. You need to do low rep stuff. You need to do explosive work because it trains your neurological system, which is going to help you recruit more muscle fibers and motor units during hypertrophy training. So even if your only goal is hypertrophy and you're like, I don't give a shit about falling. I just want to get jacked. <laughs> then you still should do this because it's going to make that hypertrophy training more effective. Um, and you're going to be more uh, fast twitch dominant fibers, which if you look at football players and athletes, like they don't do a bunch of bodybuilding. Why are they so jacked? Well, it's because of this. Like, they still do a lot of volume, but they're doing a lot of explosive work, neurologically speaking. They have a lot of fast-twitch muscle fibers being recruited constantly. It's a good thing, you know. And then when they go do bodybuilding training, they'll get more out of it because of that. Um, but we also have to watch out for neural fatigue because neurological fatigue will zap you. That's one of those ones that – that's the main reason you got to deload, right? Because you'll uh, – when I'm making a program – and this is why I look at this before I look at volume intensity and, and intensity and volume is going to have a big neurological demand, but I got to look at my exercise selection and my sequencing and my training split and, and when they're training and when they're sleeping and what, what, how many hours they're getting all those things, because that determines how well they recover. And if they, you know, recover really well, then we're going to be able to continue doing the training. If they're not recovering well because neurologically speaking I'm just taxing them every session now we have an issue and they can't even stay consistent which defeats the purpose of training in the first place um okay uh number six mind muscle connection um if you're a trainer listening to this you've probably had the client that's doing like tricep push downs and they're like am I supposed to feel this in my abs and I'm like uh kind of but do you feel it in your triceps and they're like is that on my back and they're like no no, no your arms your triceps oh like my forearms I'm like, oh shit, they're not feeling this at all, <laughs> right? So we have to find that mind-muscle connection, which means I have to go, okay, let me look at your limb lengths and your torso length. Let me look at the joint angle that you're putting in. Let me look at where you're pausing and then create a better effort at that extension point, right? So for a tricep push down, I'm going to say, hey, I need your shoulders back. I need you close to the rack. I want your elbows to stay stationary. They're not moving at all. You're going to push the bar all the way down until your elbow completely locks out. And then I want you to pinch your shoulder blades together, which is going to create hyperextension. When we do those things, you're getting your tricep in the perfect position to fire and to ignite and to hold a tight contraction. But if I don't teach that mind muscle connection, it's junk volume, right? And junk volume is this, like, you know, like if, if I do a curl and I'm doing junk volume, I'm swinging, I'm just getting it up, I'm getting it done no matter what. I don't care about my form, right? I don't, now I have less my muscle connection in my bicep, which means I'm going to have more form, I'm going to have more trap because I'm shrugging it up, delts because I'm kind of swinging it, and I get very minimal bicep. I could have done half the volume with more intent in finding that mind-muscle connection, and I would have built more muscle from less, Right. So mind muscle connection is one of those ones that's kind of it's an old, old saying. I mean, back from like Arnold Schwarzenegger days in the bodybuilding world. But it's really important. It's, it's one of those things where if you don't feel the muscle working, you, you might not be stimulating the muscle. And if you're not stimulating the muscle, you're not creating enough mechanical tension in that muscle. And we know that mechanical tension is what leads to muscle growth. Um, and, and even for the people listening, they're like, I don't give a shit about building muscle. I want to be stronger. OK, you need to stimulate your muscle to make your muscle stronger. That's that stimulus that does it. Or maybe you're like, I just want to lose fat. 
Well, perfect. But if you stimulate your muscles, you will burn more calories. You will uh, have a better hormone profile. You will maintain more muscle. You have better performance, which is going to lead to more calorie expending workouts because you're able to push harder. So no matter what your goal is, this is really, really important. And you need to figure out how to make sure that you're connecting with your muscle. Your mind-muscle connection needs to be there. And it kind of translates to the next one really well because you know, if your movement quality, which is number seven, movement quality isn't on point, you're probably not going to have a good mind-muscle connection. And what I've seen is if you don't have a good mind-muscle connection and your movement quality is shit, you're 10 times more likely to get injured, right? And so we need to consider both of these things to avoid injury. Because if I'm really connected with the muscle, so the mind-muscle connection tip, if I'm really connected with the muscle, then I place less stress on the joint. Because the muscle is taking the stress, right? So we got to think about it like this. Like your muscle is your engine, right? And the, the joint is your axle. You're, you don't want your axles to take a beating because your car will break down. But the, the engine's got to keep going, right? The engine has to take over and it has to go. And it's probably a shitty analogy because I'm not a car person. But point being is, is we need to make sure that our movement quality is up to par and we need to be using the muscles. If we're using the muscles, we're not going to be relying on the joints to take the blunt force or the tendons and ligaments. And if our movement quality is good, it's going to make that mind muscle connection a hell of a lot easier. Um, and the biggest thing for movement quality is, is pretty simple. Like if somebody's movement quality is shit, they're probably going to get injured and they're not going to have fun and they're going to, it's going to feel weird. They're not going to have a good mind-muscle connection. They're not going to have fun in the gym. They're not going to feel like they're progressing. They're not going to feel like they're moving well. Their posture is probably going to get worse, right? There's, they're going to get aches and pains. Their joints and ligaments are going to hurt over time. They're not going to perform as well. If you don't have quality movement, you will hit a plateau faster. So maybe you hit a plateau on your bench at 200 pounds. But if your movement quality is good, you wouldn't have hit a plateau until 220 pounds, which gives you 20 pounds more strength right, to work with. And then obviously we got to use some tactics outside of volume and intensity to improve through the range of motion that you have a sticking point so you can break that plateau. It's a, I mean, that's what powerlifters do. They grow, 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 hit a plateau. They implement some special exercises and break through that plateau, keep going. So you got to have movement quality. And part of movement quality is uh, related to number eight, which is a full range of motion. We actually have research that shows a full range of motion outperforms a uh, smaller or a limited range of motion for hypertrophy. Um, there's still, there's evidence to show that there's benefit in a limited range of motion in certain circumstances. Like there's times where, you know what, like it is okay to, uh, limit the range of motion because of what we're doing right now. That's, I mean, that's like the goal that's going to help us. Right. It's, it's even, I even think about like basketball players, right? Like I remember, um, watching a strength coach do, box squats. And I'm like, man, I've never seen them do back squats. You guys are doing a ton of box squats, right? And one reason was uh, when we do full range of motion squats, we're doing other variations of it so that we don't worry about injury because the, the injury risk is higher on a back squat. But number two, it was like when you see a basketball player go up to the rim, right? Go for a rebound or anything like that. Do you ever see them squat ass to grass before they jump? And I'm like, no, that would look weird. And he was like, exactly. They squat about halfway down, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's train strength in that range, right? Like, uh, and I think there's an old Charles Poliquin quote that says, like, strength is tr- uh, sh- strength should be trained in the range it's used or something like that, right? So if, if I'm doing, if I'm jumping to the rim, I'm probably doing quarter and half squats before I jump. So let's get explosive in that top half range, right? We should still work the bottom range because it allows us to have a better movement quality and, and more agile joints. But point being is, is we should be practicing that, that limited range of motion. Now, 
that's a very, very specific scenario. There's not that many scenarios that I would agree with that on or, or say that that's, that's accurate with other than basketball. Um, in other circumstances, I would say it's much more important to have a full range of motion. If you have a full range of motion, you're less likely to get injured. You're more likely to have a good mind-muscle connection. Um, you're, you're more likely to uh, be a, get away from injuries and joint pains and all that stuff. And you're more likely to build more muscle because if you're taking the muscle through a full range of motion, you're, you're placing more tension on the muscle. And you're placing a, uh, placing a greater range of tension. So going back to the joint angles things, being able to hit the muscle from different angles, it's the same thing. If I do a half rep curl, I am stimulating my bicep. But if I do a full range curl, curl all the way up, lift my elbow a little bit at the top to finish that contraction, and then I lock out my elbow and pull my shoulders back at the bottom, I'm going through such a full range of motion that I, that I really encourage the full stretch cycle and the f- full short shortening cycle of the muscle. There's a stretch and shortening cycle of every single rep that you do. And this is the, the muscle literally stretching to its maximum capacity and then shortening contraction contracting to its maximum capacity and we want that full range of motion to encourage that full stretch and full shortening cycle to to be prevalent in every single rep um, and that's why research shows it's it's probably better for hypertrophy number nine balance uh, this one's huge push pull extension flexion anterior posterior etc um, balancing your movement patterns in a program is 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 paramount to getting good results and avoiding injuries. This is why the saying of like, for every one push, you should have two pulls. And it's very accurate. You, you really should. For every, every time you do a press, you should do a pull. If you're doing over a press, you should do a vertical pull. If you're doing a horizontal press, you should do a horizontal row, right? Most people, because most people have shitty posture, even as I'm writing this, I'm kind of slouched over. Most people wake up, they sit at the breakfast table and they're leaned over the table. Then they get in their car and they lean over the steering wheel and drive to work. Then they sit at their desk and hunch over the keyboard, right? Then they drive home, hunched over again. Maybe they stop by the gym. Half the people do soul cycle and and ride a bike, which is leaning over more. So point being is you're constantly in this protracted shoulder, so rounded upper back and flexed hip, so shortened hip flexor position. Now we have back pain. Now we have tight hips. Now we have achy shoulders. Now we get impingements when we bench press and it's because our lifestyles are promoting shitty posture but how do we combat that so you can still train well we balance out pushing and pulling and extension and flexion and anterior and posterior so for uh, for everybody universal rule no matter what for every push or anterior movement you should do a posterior movement so every time i flex my spine i should extend it every time i flex my hips i should extend them every time i do a push, I should pull. Every time I do a press, I should pull, right? Push, row, press, pull. Every time I do something for the front of my body, anterior, I should do something for the, the back of my body, posterior, glutes, hamstrings, backs, calves, so on and so forth. Uh, really, really, really important. This balance key is so important. This is like for longevity in training, it's unbelievable, uh, unbelievably important to balance people's training effectively, or they will not be in the gym training with you for very long. Number 10, fatigue management per session and weekly. So this is where, you know, if, so like a good example, if you look at the West Side Book of uh, Barbell, West Side Barbell Book of Methods, uh, the conjugate method, uh, Louis Simmons, like when they, they talk about their training programs, the upper lower split, and they have max effort and dynamic effort days. I've talked about this a million times on the podcast because I like the conjugate method a lot. And 
we have two days that are max effort. So they're low rep, high strength, getting close to your one rep max failure, right? Then we have two days that are dynamic. We're working on more speed. We're leaving reps in the tank. Maybe we're adding hypertrophy work in, so on and so forth, right? Definitely less neurologically taxing, right? Just less fatiguing in general. So would it be smart to do max effort Monday and Tuesday or should I do max effort Monday and Wednesday? And maybe I should do it Monday and Thursday and then do dynamic on Tuesday and Friday. Right. Either way, what we're doing is we're separating those max effort days by 48 to 72 hours. Um, and there's very rarely circumstances where you should put max effort days back to back. I have uh, before I can think of one program. It's a, it's a four day performance bodybuilding program in the Taylor trainer that I actually do that on purpose because those max effort days are not a West Side conjugate powerlifting max effort day. It's, it's different. Um, and therefore, one, the fatigue management is going to be totally fine. And two, it allows us to have two back-to-back hypertrophy days as well, which is what my goal was. But point being, um, and even in, you can do that with uh, uh, upper, lower push-pull legs. You really can't, like if you want to use that split, you can't get away from doing two max effort days. But even within that, you have to, you have to determine like, okay, if I have to do two max every days back to back, how do I manage fatigue between these? How do I make sure that the exercises that I'm doing on Monday aren't going to negatively impact the exercises I do on Tuesday? How do I know that what I do on Monday doesn't affect Wednesday, right? There's, there's crossover muscles. When I do a deadlift, do you think I'm just working glutes and hamstrings? No, no shot in hell. So if, if I'm doing things the next day, how do those, how will those be impacted by the heavy deadlifts I did yesterday? Should I separate them more days? Should I change the exercises? How do I manage this fatigue session to session and throughout the week? But we can also consider this on a monthly basis. So for example, uh, Functional Muscle 2.0, one of the eBooks that we sell um, that I'll, I'll link in the show notes for you guys, it has a weekly undulated model, which means that it, it basically does this. It, it has... Week one is, is max effort Monday and Tuesday, and then it's push-pull legs Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So max effort going heavy, right? Week two is dynamic effort. So we're still doing upper lower on Monday, Tuesday, but it's speed work. It's lighter. So we're, we're managing fatigue week to week. So by the end of the month, we're not neurologically fatigued, right? So you can manage fatigue on a, on a session by session, week by week, month by month basis. There's even times of, of the year where you should ramp up fatigue, right? So I, I spent... Six months doing a push-pull legs, six-day-a-week split. That was really, really high volume for me and a lot of training stress. I grew. It worked. But I could only stick with that for so long. I had a phase of my year that was going to be high stress, right, high volume. Um, I had to really work on managing fatigue session to session. But once I finished that phase of training, I went into something that was far less fatiguing. So now I can manage my fatigue better still. Right, you can go so long, but fatiguing, uh, fatigue management, session to session, week to week, is really, really important. Um, exercise sequencing is number eleven. What I do at the beginning of my workout affects what I do at the end of my workout, and I think it's funny when people. You can tell a bad trainer when they just slap a bunch of exercises that they think are cool and onto a piece of paper and give it to you as a workout, right? Or, or if if you ask your coach or your trainer, hey, can I switch? Can I do uh, these after these? Instead, you know, can I like take like 2A and put that, make it 4A instead and bring 4A up to 2A? And if they're like, yeah, sure, that's fine. As long as you get all the volume in, they are selling you short. Are they correct? Eh, To an extent. I mean, theoretically speaking, if you get the volume in, you're good. However, exercise sequencing is going to come in play. And this is why a great trainer would say, no, it's written that way for a reason. Because the way I sequence exercises is based on 
fatigue management. So going back to the last point, number 10, um, I know that the, at the beginning we're doing low fatigue, high activation. Then we're going into high fatigue, low activation. Then we're going closer and closer to high activation and further and further away from high fatigue, right? So what this looks like is, is activation drills, then a heavy squat bench or deadlift, and then some accessory works that are still pretty fatiguing, and, and they create mental uh, fatigue that you have to think hard to, in order to do this properly. And then we go into isolation work that is like mindless. Curls, lateral raises, leg extensions, things that you, you can do with your eyes closed that aren't going to affect you much. Then we go into those, right? So exercise sequencing that way ensures that I don't try to do a my heavy back squat after doing lunges and hip thrusts and things like that that fatigued me before I get to it, right? Also, it, it implies that I'm doing these activation and priming drills to make sure that my nervous system, my joints, and my muscles are ready to train these big lifts. Um, so exercise sequencing is another way to improve performance, manage fatigue and energy throughout the training session, and avoid injuries and joint pain, right? Um, that's, that's a really big thing. So, uh, but I would also even say this, like I know people who flip the script on exercise selection because their person is a fighter. Their person is a football player, something like that. And they need to perform in the fourth quarter. They need to perform in the last round. They need to be explosive. So they'll go through a whole workout and they'll go, all right, we're going to do some power snatches. It's like, can you still be explosive by the end of this hour workout? You know, that's not what I would do for 99% of people. However, there is a special population where that might be effective. And the only way you can stimulate that response is by exercise sequencing properly. Really, really important. Number 12, technique and execution. This one kind of relates to full range of motion and mind-muscle connection and movement quality, but it's it's the point of being able to execute a movement properly. If you don't know, like the, the thing I will, I'm going to make this short and sweet. Training is a skill. Bench press is a skill. Squat is a skill. Deadlift is a skill. They're all skills. So if you can't learn the skill and, and practice the technique to get it to a point that is effective and efficient to where you're executing every movement properly, you will not get the most out of it. This is going back to junk volume. If you're doing things incorrectly or with poor technique, it's just junk volume. Not only are you probably going to get hurt, you're not going to get as much out of it. Number 13 is posture. I'm going to speed these up just a little bit because we're running out of time, guys. Number 13 is posture. Posture is really important because I talked about earlier Everyday people are slouching, even me. Like you're, you're put into positions all day, every day that are encouraging a shitty posture. Hunched over back, flexed hips, it, you're rounded. It's, it's just not good. Like you are being in a position all day that is encouraging bad posture. So you need to work the push, pull, extension, flexion, posterior, anterior thing tremendously if you have bad posture. But I'm also considering what specific exercise put them into good posture. This is one of the reasons why I do so much band pull-aparts and face pulls because it pulls your shoulders back. It activates all the muscles that cause scapular retraction. So now my shoulders naturally sit back and I sit tall with good posture. Um, it's also why I do a lot of hip extension, right? A lot of bridges, hip thrusts, deadlifts, things like that. Pause at the top and squeeze your glutes. I want to get you into full extension, get you comfortable in that position of extension because you're constantly in flexion. Uh, but posture is something that you need to look at. And it also determines your exercise selection. Uh, if somebody comes in or your joint angles, I should say, 
uh, either one. But if somebody comes in and they have horrible posture or they're slouch or their their arms hang a weird way or their palms face inward naturally instead of at their sides or whatever it may be, um, their neck is has a forward head posture, right? Your neck is leaning forward. That's going to dictate what exercises I give that person. It's going to dictate how I manipulate their joint angles during an exercise. And it's going to determine how much volume I place in each area of the body, literally. So that one's super important too. Number 14, aerobic capacity. Aerobic training is something that like kind of got uh, like uh, bastardized and, and people stayed away from because they thought they were going to lose all their gains. They've done enough research now that as long as you separate your cardio from your strength training by like four to six hours or more, ideally eating between, you're not going to lose any muscle from doing cardio. Um, I don't think you should do a ton of cardio if your goal is building muscle or fat loss or anything like that. I think the only reason you should do a ton of cardio is if your sport requires you to do a ton of cardio, like endurance running or soccer or so on and so forth. But aerobic capacity is your baseline for strength training. Uh, If you build your aerobic capacity, you improve your oxidative system. You improve how your body takes oxygen into uh, and, and produces energy. It, it develops your energy systems, but you can't lift efficiently if you don't have a good aerobic system. It's it's our baseline. It's it's where our energy comes from. It's how we produce more energy. It's how we get more efficient at producing energy. It is how we recover faster. So if we improve our aerobic capacity and we improve our uh, oxidative system, this entire energy system, we will recover faster between sets, between reps, between exercises, between uh, days of the week. So like if we want to be able to handle the volume that we need in order to grow or change our body or build strength, then we have to have a good aerobic baseline. It's if we don't, we won't be able to recover from it. Number 15, lifestyle slash schedule. So when I work with a client, I need to know how many days a week do you work? How many days a week do you want to go to the gym? How, how many hours do you sleep? Who, who do you live with? Do you live with anyone? Do you have a family? Do you go out to eat? Do you go grab drinks? Do you, how often do you do that? Do you take vacations? What is your lifestyle like? What do you do for fun? Right? What's your schedule hour by hour? Because that's going to dictate when we train, how long we train, how we train, how often we train, how stressful your training is going to be. Because if your life is stressed, then I want to make training less stress. Right? So lifestyle and schedule essentially that's like the starting point honestly i know it's number 15 but that's actually the first thing we need to look at their lifestyle and schedule and have a discussion with them before we even talk about programming number 16 joint stress and tissue quality um really good podcast on joe defranco's podcast with kelly starrett um if you follow kelly starrett you'll see he's been talking a lot about this but he just had knee surgery and he talks a lot about how the a lot of the joint stress came from tissue stress and how a lot of people who work on tissue quality can actually work through injuries easier. So making sure that your joints aren't stressed simply allows you to continue training and avoid injuries, right? It allows you to continue to get a full range of motion, have better movement quality, and go through the training consistently like we've been talking about. Tissue quality will do the same thing. You'll be tighter. It'll be harder to get a full range of motion. You're more likely to strain a muscle if you have poor tissue quality. Um, So improving joint stress and improving tissue quality is basically doing soft tissue work and mobility pre, post, in the morning. It doesn't matter. You're doing it in order to get the most out of your training and avoid injury. And if you get injured, to be able to continue pushing through even though you got injured. The last one might be the most important one. Number 17, challenge. This shit should be hard. If you're 
program is not fun, you won't stay consistent, yes. But if it's not challenging, if it doesn't push you, if it doesn't take you a little bit out of your comfort zone, at least sometimes, you're going to have a big issue. You are not going to get as great of results if you don't make sure that your, your workouts and your training is pushing you past your normal limit, just a little bit at least. Right, So you have to be able to push yourself outside of your comfort zone um, and challenge yourself on a regular basis. If you don't challenge yourself, you won't be forced to grow or progress. And if you don't create progressive overload, you actually won't stimulate muscle growth or strength. So number 17 is probably the most important. And I want you guys to all really take a good look at your training. Audit your training and say, like, number one, is it challenging? Right, That's, That was what I was going to get at. Is it challenging? But more importantly, are you doing these 17 things? Are you going through all of these? Limb length, joint imposition, fun and enjoyment, effort, neurological fatigue and management, mind-muscle connection and adaptation, I'd say. Mind-muscle connection, movement quality, full range of motion, balance, fatigue management, procession, exercise sequencing, technique and execution, posture, aerobic capacity, lifestyle, joint stress, tissue quality, and challenge. Are you doing these things? If you're not, obviously, I have a huge plug. Go to the Taylor Trainer, taylorcoachingmethod.com slash taylor-trainer, link in the description. I make sure these are happening, but look at your programming, audit your training and ask yourself, are you abiding by these 17 principles? And if you are, fan-fucking-tastic. If you're not, make a change. You will not regret it. Thank you guys for listening today. I'll catch you next time. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more again to get you better results. The second thing, Head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.